0: the importance of being an upstander. The Holocaust is just filled with stories of when people acted instead of just turning their head the other way, people survived. My mother's family survived because a Polish farmer decided to help them. I think we need to be prepared for the epidemic of anxiety and mental health issues that young people are going to bring to colleges to take to their first jobs, to take back to high school. And I don't think we're prepared.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women, our cross-generational, cross-cultural conversation about leadership, power, social justice, and gender. I'm
2: Ann Doyle. And I'm Dana Harvey, coming to you from the Motor City Woman Studios in Detroit, Michigan.
1: Well, Dana, I am very discouraged that this Delta variant of this terrible pandemic we've been living through is really taking us in the wrong direction. And, you know, I'm fully vaccinated, but I'm also taking this very seriously. I'm wearing my mask again in public places, being pretty careful. How about you, Dana?
2: Yeah, and I'm the same. I am. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm I'm, uh, eagerly anticipating the booster as soon as we can get it. That's how important I think that this is we're regressing unfortunately i never stopped wearing my mask i've always been careful but there is a you know a portion of our country who who does not believe in doing something for the greater good and and that is very frustrating and we are back to almost where we were right when the vaccines came out it's frustrating
1: it's really frustrating this is sort of the balance of personal freedom and responsibility to the community we are all part of a uh, Much bigger world. You know, the other big news, of course, is the Olympics, which are winding down. And the big story, of course, uh, Simone Biles and, um, you know, her demonstration really to the world, I guess, that even one of the greatest gymnasts of all times is not immune from human fragility. How did you look at her decision to pull out because of this uh, phenomenon that gymnasts fear called the twisties? And uh, last night, she just won a bronze medal. I mean, she, she got back on the horse, so to speak, and competed again. How did you I, look at I paid, that?
2: I pay close attention, Anna, As a mother of a former gymnast and even one who experienced a, a fall uh, surgery and recovery and trying to get back into the game, it's tough you know but to compete at Simone's level and to understand how the twisties are detrimental i mean you know possibly even fatal if something happens you have to you know appreciate her standing up for herself you know advocating for herself i think it's a great leadership decision for, not only for herself but for young girls to watch and know that they can take care of themselves first even on the world stage you can still take care of yourself first. I give a lot of credit to her for doing that.
1: You know, I didn't realize that your daughter suffered a very serious injury uh, as a gymnast. So thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I think people also forget that Simone Biles is also recovering from the trauma of being one of the, the hundreds of victims of sexual assault by USA Olympics, Dr. Larry Nasser, who of course is in prison
2: now. yes. So what we know is that the lessons that we can learn from Simone Biles' example are very relevant to our topic today, which is all about resiliency of the human spirit. Our guest is Leslie Gilbert Lurie, author of Bending Toward the Sun, a mother and daughter memoir. It's the stunning story of the impact that trauma can have on multiple generations, but also of the power of the human spirit to not only overcome catastrophic events but to find blessings and growth and healing from them.
1: Right. Leslie's mother was five years old when she was forced to flee her home in Poland during World War II to hide from the Nazis for one and a half years in a small attic of a farmhouse. And this book begins with a stunning and a really rare perspective of the Holocaust through the eyes of a child, which we rarely hear. And then it takes us on the journey of that child's courageous journey to live a full life as a wife, a mother of three, including
2: Leslie, and grandmother of seven. Leslie Gilbert-Lurie is a Los Angeles lawyer, a human rights and children's rights activist, former television executive, and a philanthropist. She's a member of the International Board of Directors of Human Rights Watch, the Alliance for Children's Rights, and Board of UCLA's Law School, UCLA Medical Center, and the UCLA Foundation.
1: Yes, and I had the pleasure of meeting Leslie and her mother, Rita Lurie, several weeks ago during a virtual conversation with them that I was asked to host by the LA trusteeship of the International Women's Forum. Welcome, Leslie, joining us from California.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Leslie, I was absolutely stunned and inspired by the courage and resilience that your mother's life has demonstrated, but also by the thousands of hours of research, interviewing, traveling back to Poland to visit that attic that it took for you to write and then to share this really important story of the world. And I want to begin by asking you if you had any hesitancy about digging deeper into your mother's very traumatic experiences, but in order to share
0: this really important story. I did. Every step along the way, I guess I was hesitant in one way or another. Originally, I wasn't anxious Uh, To write my mother's story. I never, I hadn't really thought about writing a book about my mother's story. I was at her home one day and she was frustrated. She wanted to tell her story. She had been speaking in churches and synagogues, and students had been interested and she wanted to tell her story to a broader group of people. She also had heard an increasing Number of Holocaust deniers on the news. And she wanted to provide testimony to the fact that the Holocaust, of course, had taken place. And that morning, when I was at her house and I, you know, was asking her why she wanted to tell the story, she finally said, you know, I want to show that people could go through the worst experiences imaginable and not only survive, but survive well, go on to have good things happen also. So I was just sort of moved by all of her reasons that morning. And I said, well, maybe I could help you. And I always say, I don't think she heard me say maybe. (laughs) So by the time I finished, (laughs) she said, that's great. When can we start? And so I went home hesitant because I had never written a memoir. I had written some television scripts when I was working as an executive at NBC, which I had done for the prior decade, but I had never written a memoir and I didn't want to disappoint her. And then all along the way, every time I knew my mother had been a child, she actually had hid in the attic for two years and she was um, five to seven years old at the time. And I wanted to tell her story in a different way. And so I wanted to get the testimony also of as many other relatives as I could who had hid in the attic with her. And I wanted to also interview my own peers, my sister, my brother, my cousins, and then the children. I had this thought about looking at how trauma gets transmitted from generation to generation. So I guess the final thing I was hesitant about is every time I called one of my mother's relatives who also had survived the Holocaust, I thought, I'm going to ruin their day. I'm going
2: to ask them about such a painful subject. Leslie, you mentioned that trauma passes through generations, and we know that is to be the case. What have you learned through your family's personal experience in writing this book about that generational trauma journey? Well, I've learned
0: through research in as we were writing the book, there's different ideas about how trauma gets transmitted. There are psychoanalytic theories. Some people think one generation represses memories and then the next generation inherits them. Some people think there, there are sociological theories. Like if you grow up in a house and your parent is always saying, be careful of this or don't talk to strangers, you're gonna be afraid of those things. And then there is this really interesting epigenetic research that, has, that is growing that really talks about biologic changes from um, one generation's trauma that gets transmitted to the next. So cortisol level stress hormones in generation and generation after the first generation. There's research that shows, for example, the grandchildren of Irish potato famine victims are obese. There's separation anxiety. There's a lot of research that shows that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors are more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And so as we looked into this for my story, I realized that a lot of what I had experienced growing up in terms of separation anxiety, in terms of my ambition to change the world, I looked at my daughter who also had extreme separation anxiety, never wanted to sleep away at anybody else's house, never wanted to go to camp, was in fact extremely sad years later when she went away to law school. She she said, I can't do it. But then the resiliency comes into play too. And she did.
1: It's a very powerful story. I highly recommend this book, but your book begins with, you know, taking people back to Poland and what your mother remembers. And, you know, she was five years old, which is old enough to remember some things. And just will you share a little bit of that experience in the attic to make it clear to people? I think there were 14 other relatives in this freezing cold place with no food. I mean, just give us a little sense of that, would you? And I know you went back and visited that attic.
0: Yes. And so life in the attic was very difficult. When they <laughs> first arrived in the attic, this was the attic of a farmer who my mother's family had known growing up. His name was Stashek Raholski, and they knew he was a good person. <laughs> they snuck over to his house late one night and climbed up this narrow set of stairs into a small dark attic. It was five feet high, 15 feet wide, and 25 feet long. And suddenly there were 15 people in this space. There was just straw on the ground. So, and as you were saying, in the winter, it was freezing cold. There were just wood slats. And in the summer, it was really, really hot. And even though there was a well right outside of the attic, the family couldn't sneak outside to even get water during the day because Nazi soldiers would come by this farm regularly to get cheese, to get eggs. They couldn't make any sound. The children were not allowed to talk. In fact, if a child cried in the attic, one of the Graholskis downstairs would hit one of their own children there were four children living in the house they would hit one of their own just so that cries would not would cover up the cries um upstairs there was also very little food at first the family brought food upstairs but um they were highly rationed themselves and they the penalty for sheltering a jewish family was death so they didn't really want this family there over time and they were always afraid of being caught mrs grahalski her daughters told us years later that one day she was collecting potatoes she was washing them in her kitchen and a neighbor came by and said why do you need all these potatoes and she had to quickly make up a story that uh, that her horses had some teeth problem and that they could only eat boiled potatoes But basically, the family had to sneak out at night and pick fruit from trees. Sometimes even people in the village would leave little bits of food outside. So clearly, some people helped keep their secret. But life in the attic was very difficult. My mother's three-year-old brother one morning woke up and my mother heard cries and sobbing. And uh, her baby brother had died. He had never seen a doctor They don't really know what he died of, some starvation or some illness. And then just a few weeks after that, my mother's mother died in the attic as well. They celebrated Shabbat on Friday nights by just lighting a candle. And my mother remembers her whole family gathered around a semicircle, her mother lighting a candle and looking at each member of the family and putting her head down and dying also this was after about a year and a half in the attic so life was very 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 difficult everyone every holocaust survivor is a miraculous story
1: yeah but but you know of all the, the movies and the books and the things written i have i have not seen or heard anything through the eyes of a child and this is in a very powerful important perspective
2: Mm -hmm.
0: My mother's story is very unusual. It was very unusual for one large family to hide together. Usually people split up into smaller groups. My mother's family even split up into smaller groups, but this group of 15 wound up together. And it was very unusual for a group to stay in one place for a long period of time. So the only family we know who hid in one place like that for two years, large group, was Anne Frank's family was the story most similar to my mother's. They hid exactly the same period of time, the summer of 1942 to the summer of 1944. But Anne Frame's family was
2: eventually uh, found by the Nazis. Leslie, I wanted to ask about your emotions as you were going through and unearthing a lot of the stories from your mother um, and understanding how deeply she felt and what the impact had on her and on you. Um, what lessons would you say we've learned from the Holocaust that are particularly important as we look at the rise of autocrats and dictators in the world today? I think there are so
0: many lessons from the Holocaust. It's just rife with lessons. I think starting with exactly what you what you just said, Dana, that Hitler came to power in a democracy, not unlike our democracy today. And Little by little, he took away the rights of citizens until he had taken away so many rights that it was too late to object. So it's really a lesson in the the shortcomings of democracy, how fragile it is. And what I always try to say, especially to young people, we talk to so many young people, is You know, democracies are about the majority ruling and we as individuals have a lot of power in a democracy. We always have to work hard to protect our own rights and to protect the rights of the minority in a democracy, because we grew up learning that majority rules. Right. So, you know, we have to protect our own rights. So that's a huge lesson. I think another lesson of the Holocaust is, The importance of being an upstander. The Holocaust is just filled with stories of when people acted instead of just turning their head the other way, people survived. My mother's family survived because a Polish farmer decided to help them and certain people in their village left food out. The few people who did good helped a family to survive and the Holocaust is filled with stories like that. And that's what heroes do. And I try to, again, emphasize that because I think sometimes we think heroes are born. And we think if we're not a straight A student or the captain of the football team or the student body president, we're not good enough. But heroes are average people who one day just decide to do something good. President Bill Clinton one day at a press conference, someone raised a reporter, raised his hand and said, what advice would you give my 12 year old son to have him make the world better? And President Clinton said, tell him to meet as many people as he can his age who are different from him. And that's another lesson of the Holocaust. Jewish people who were more assimilated, who knew people different from them, were more likely to survive. Nazis You know, there are countless stories of Nazis saying, yeah, the Jewish people are this and that and this horrible thing, except for the one who lives next door to me. She's a good person. And when we know people, when we know people different from ourselves, stereotypes and prejudice are less likely to survive.
1: You have touched on so many important uh, touchstones right now that our country is struggling with. <laughs> the threat to democracy that certainly is underway right now. Also, you know, what we have seen in terms of the racism that is out of the box right now, anti Asian violence, all those pieces that you've just touched on. But I also want to. Go back to that point you were making about being heroes and shiros. And in addition to the people who helped your mother and her family, she also is a shiro in terms of her life journey of surviving such a traumatic experience and finding a way to build a life and raise a daughter such as you and two other children and then seven grandchildren what have you observed and learned i guess from your mother's journey as a shiro
0: my mother really is a shiro it's not coincidental that she was the mother of my sister and my brother and me she was a very positive person she had So much faith in us, in her children, and so much confidence. I think that we knew what was best for us. She was never the type of mother who said, make sure to say thank you to this lady. Or, you know, did you do your homework? Like She she trusted us to know what was best for us. And I think that helped us grow up with a lot of self-confidence. She was always very psychologically attuned, I think, because she was felt that mental health professionals really gave her her so much of her life back and so if i said i had a headache she would say is there something bothering you which i think made all of us more psychologically sensitive but i'm um, watching my mother this last year during covid where she's living in an assisted living home and there was so much tension in the world and in her community It made me realize what a survivor she really is. It made me think it wasn't just luck that she survived the Holocaust as such a small child. Not very many children survived the Holocaust, but she really had survivor genes. Like she kind of hunkered down and did what she had to do. And I think to her, if it wasn't, if she wasn't in a life and death experience she was going to be okay she could sit in her room for a year as long as she thought doing so would make her safe
2: i love the way that you you describe her ability to you know innately be herself but also be a survivor mm-hmm. and what you learned from her behavior as a child through her parenting you how did your mother's style of parenting influence the way you parent <laughs>
0: Well, it, it it my mother's style did influence the way I parented because I also always wanted my children to have that absolute confidence, to know how confident I was in them. But I'm more controlling than my mother was or than my parents were. So sometimes I wish I had been more the parent that she was in the way that You know, I really thought my parents felt that I knew what was best for me. And I have to say, I sometimes felt like I knew what was best for my children. Like sometimes I just couldn't help myself but to try to steer them more in one direction or another than my mother had. But nothing is more important than my children knowing that they were loved and that they had a strong, supportive family.
1: We started out by talking about this example on the global stage of Simone Biles and her struggle with her mental health and, and the tremendous stress of that. And uh, I know that you told me that uh, your experience with your mother and and this intergenerational impact of trauma has made you more empathetic about the challenges of mental health. And here you are on uh, three of the boards of UCLA. What do you see right now in terms of what we need to do in terms of preparing as we come out of this this pandemic and the stress that of mental health that so many people are dealing with?
0: I think we need to be prepared for the epidemic of anxiety and mental health issues that young people are going to bring to colleges to take to their first jobs, to take back to high school. And I don't think we're prepared. I don't think that we have the trained mental health professionals on the ground at universities, at high schools, in the communities to deal with all of these issues. And I really am afraid of what that is going to lead to. I think, you know, in the worst case scenarios, what we tend to do is we just over medicate people, but we don't get at root issues of what is bothering them. And I think Simone Biles and, you know, what took place this week and not just Simone Biles, but Naomi Osaka and all the young athletes who, you know, keep shouting about mental health issues. And I think they're going to talk about it more and more because we as adults, you know, I think we can't help but put but imagine that the world is the same as when we were young. And so, you know, athletes are yelling about it because adults project all of our fantasies of, you know, success and independence and gutting it out onto this generation who doesn't necessarily feel the exact same way. And what they're saying is, we don't care what you want us to do. We don't care that you want us to speak at this press conference. We don't care that you want us to do two and a half twists today off the vault. Today's not the day I'm going to do that because I don't feel up to it. And they're saying, you might think that's weak. You might think that's irresponsible, but we don't care because we know we have to take care of ourselves. And, you know, I think when they look at this world where there's climate change and there is autocracy, and there is this great divide between haves and have-nots, they think you adults don't necessarily know everything that is right for us. We better take care of ourselves.
1: Wow. Well, that's a powerful, powerful message. Thank you so much, Leslie, for being with us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Bending Toward the Sun, a mother and daughter memoir, is riveting, inspiring. It's a very, very important book. I highly recommend it. I I hope it's made into a movie someday. So thank you so much, uh, author Leslie Gilbert Lurie, for writing it and for joining us. I'm Ann Doyle.
2: And I'm Dana Harvey. Again, I echo Anne Sentiments. This has been a fantastic and educational and inspirational conversation that I can't wait to share. Let's all go. Power Power up. Up! Thank you for joining us at Power Up Women. We hope you'll subscribe, share us with your network, and rate us where you get your podcasts. It really helps build the buzz. And remember, when one woman
1: rises, we all rise. Make sure you reach back and lift others as you climb.